I guess I should say elementary kids and anybody else who doesn't want to be in here, all right? Doesn't want to listen to Bob this morning. Well, as we uh, have mentioned, we, we kicked off the Christian season of Lent this week with our Ash Wednesday service, and, and Lent is a, a 40-day period that culminates in Easter Sunday, and so it'll kind of encompass the next six Sunday mornings. And this year, we're going to focus on six parables that Jesus told in the last week of his life leading up to the cross. And so a lot can be learned by what someone chooses to focus on and the message they choose to communicate in their last days, especially when they absolutely know the end is coming. Jesus was the only one in his entourage that week that knew how that week was going to end. And so we're going to take a look at a couple of scenes that are going to give us some context into our passage today. So I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, it's page 897. And if you just look at the little headings in the Bible there that kind of break off each section, you can kind of get uh, an idea of the plot line uh, of the story. So Jesus enters Jerusalem on Sunday uh, at the beginning of uh, the Passover festival in Jerusalem. This is one of the the biggest um, yearly celebrations of the Jewish people. And so Jews from all over the Roman Empire have descended on Jerusalem, these religious pilgrims that are coming there to celebrate Passover. So the the streets of Jerusalem are swollen um, with hundreds of thousands more people than usual. Okay, and when they hear Jesus is getting ready to enter the city, they start lining the streets and basically throw Jesus this huge parade um, where they are basically proclaiming that they want him to be the next king of the Jews. Verse 10 says that the whole city was stirred up. And Jesus immediately at the end of this goes into the temple courts. The temple was kind of the, the headquarters of religious life for the Jews. He goes in there, and he goes into um, the little courtyard there, and he begins turning the tables over of all the the money uh, lenders and the people selling animals for sacrifice. Jesus is disgusted that this house that's very uh, important to religious life and is supposed to be just kind of reverent has turned into this profitable business center, and people have lost you know, the intention of what that place is supposed to be. And so he comes in and just in righteous anger starts turning tables over. And then he begins going around and healing the the blind and the lame. Jesus is on a mission and he's offending a lot of people here. Okay, the crowds are are all about what Jesus is doing, but the religious leaders and then the institution are very threatened by Jesus's that their, their authority and their control of the people is being threatened by Jesus. You see, they're, they're allowed to be in, have some semblance of control by the Romans. And so that was the deal with Jesus. As he was attracting crowds and stirring up people, is the, the religious leaders in, 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 in Jewish society that only had power because the Romans gave it to them were nervous. Because if they couldn't control the people, the Romans were going to take away their power and authority and say, hey, well, you, you know, you got this rabble rouser out here you guys can't control. We're going to replace you. So that's why he was such a threat to people here. So that's kind of day one of the first day of the last week of his life. And then the next day, if you look at the next heading, it says that Jesus is bringing his disciples back into the city and they pass by a fig tree. And Matthew writes that the tree had leaves but no fruit. 
So what that means is that the tree kind of looked the part of a tree, but it wasn't really living into its true identity because it was a fruit tree. It was supposed to be producing something besides just leaves. And, and this was a metaphor for the people of Israel and especially the religious leaders of the day that, hey, you guys are doing all this religious stuff. You look good on the outside, but you're really not producing any spiritual fruit. And this is kind of this, the theme of several of the parables that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, that when you get down beneath the outer spiritual veneer of these religious people in Israel, and you take a look on the inside, their hearts are bankrupt. And Jesus is addressing this. The next heading you see is the authority of Jesus being questioned. So members of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin were a group of people who were kind of in charge of temple activities. They are coming and, and they're kind of questioning and, 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 and challenging Jesus, kind of trying, trying to discredit him um, because of this perceived power that he feels like he has, that he can come in and just kind of do whatever he wants on their turf. And Jesus answers their question by launching into several parables that we're going to be taking a look at. I love this description of parables I came across this week by a theologian named N.T. Wright. You've probably heard of him. It says, N.T. Wright points out that the parables of Jesus function as a dramatic plays in search of actors. He says that when we hear the parables of the kingdom, Jesus is inviting us to audition for the parts. The parables communicate the plot of the kingdom of God, the different characters in the kingdom of God, and, in essence, the script we are to follow. When we hear the parables, Jesus invites us to enter into the drama of the kingdom and to put ourselves fully into our parts. I really like that. It's the first time I've, I saw that this week. So that gives you an idea of kind of the point of why Jesus is speaking in parables here. So we're going to go ahead and dive in. We're going to be starting in verse 28 of chapter 21. Jesus, again, addressing these religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, these priests, he says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. So Jesus tells the story of a father and two sons. So it's this parable couched in the language of family. And we pick up on some clues here. We find out that they're kind of an agrarian family. They own a vineyard. And just like any kind of agrarian uh, situation with farming or whatever, there's, there are a certain set of tasks that have to be completed in a certain timely fashion in order for the, the farm to, to run right, right, to get things out on time. And the ex expectation for any farming family is that the, the kids are chipping in, right? Like working, how many of you grew up on a farm, right? Was it optional about whether you participated or not? No, okay? Work here isn't optional, but attitude is everything. So two very different responses. The first son, um, man, it's a little shocking how he responds if, if you kind of read it with a little bit of, of dramatic interpretation here. He has this really obstinate and rebellious tone in his reply. He says, I will not. But it says that later he changed his mind and went. Now, I've done that before. 
You know, it's definitely in my younger days, somebody would come to me and said, hey, I need you to do this. And I've been kind of abrasive or selfish and just been like, nah, I don't think so, right? But then later, you know, maybe after mom went to work, I kind of realized, uh, I probably better do that. <laughs> or maybe, hey, I was kind of being a jerk. I probably should go do that anyways, right? The first son here represents the sinners in Jewish society. So later on, we're going to see these tax collectors and prostitutes, the people that the church leaders would have looked down on and would have definitely said that people like them don't have any place in the kingdom of God. These were the folks that initially rejected the Old Testament laws. They were not really following the the, the Jewish rules and regulations, Ten Commandments and that kind of stuff in the way that they were living their life. But later, when they heard about the grace and the love of Jesus, they did respond and they changed their tune and began to be transformed. The second son says all the right things initially. He even kind of goes so far as to kind of add the little brown noser, you know, yes, sir. Oh, I will, sir. You bet, right? But then he doesn't go out and do anything. He really had no intention of following through. And I've done that too, (laughs) right? Somebody's come to me and said, hey, you know, maybe it's your wife, Hey, sweetie, I'm going to go, you know, out with the girls here. We got some errands to run today. I really need you to get the leaves out of the gutter today. Like, it's been like that for a while. You've got a few hours. I know you got nothing going on, you know. And you'd be like, oh, honey, absolutely. You can count on me. I'm going to get it done, you know. And she's out the door, and you're taking a nap or turning on the game for a little while, and then you fall asleep and, you know, realize you couldn't get it finished up in time. That, and you know... That it's going to catch up to you eventually, but you bought yourself a few hours, right, by just telling her what she wanted to hear. So one thing you notice right away is that the words of these two sons and their actions don't line up. This is a parable about believing and doing, about listening and obeying, okay, as an indicator of the true condition of our hearts, an indicator of the true condition of our hearts. The prophet Isaiah described this condition so clearly. In Isaiah 29, 13, he said this, The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Far, far from me. Jesus' brother James said it this way in James 2, verses 14 through 17. It says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And I love, I don't know if you guys notice this, many times in scripture, they kind of couch these, uh, or they couple faith and deeds in the context of caring for the poor. Constantly. Right, the sheep and the goats. Right? How can you just say to a brother, Oh, go, go, you know, be well fed and and then not do something about their need? It's the deed that proves what it is you believe. After Jesus lays this parable out, he asks them this question in verse thirty one. He says, Which of the two did what his father wanted? What did you think of their reply? Take a look at their reply. What do you think of how they answered the question? 
verse 31. Okay. Yeah, why not? Well, he was kind of snotty. Okay, perfect. She said, they, they say that it's the first one that did the right thing, but she's like, that doesn't feel right because he was kind of snotty about how he went about doing the right thing, right? So two things really came to mind for me as I read this is kind of like what she said, neither son really honored the father, right? One dishonored him with his words, the other dishonored him with his actions or lack of actions. And I wonder if that's why Jesus didn't say, yeah, you're right, it was the first son. He doesn't really acknowledge their answer at all, whether it was right or wrong. Secondly, they did perceive that the first son was the better answer. <laughs> but in so doing, they kind of incriminated themselves, right? So it's interesting because I can be a lot like those priests. I can know the right biblical answers, but still choose to make or fail to make the connection between that answer, that thing I say I know I believe, to my own sin, right? I know the Bible says, guys, I've been a Christian for a long time and a pastor for a while now. I know it says that I'm supposed to forgive I and mean, I know it says that I'm supposed to love my enemy and pray for them. I know it says that I'm supposed to not be jealous and greedy and gossip about people. And I'm supposed to have no other gods or idols in my life before him. I know all of those things. But yet I do the opposite of those things all the time. I disobey a lot. And there's often a disconnect between what I say I believe about God and about others and what I do. James 1.22 says this, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Guys, I'm an expert at deceiving myself. And for people like me, Jesus hits it hard with this next part. Let's look at the rest of verse 31. So after they said, hey, the first son is the one who did what the Father wanted. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you, John the Baptist, came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Guys, it's hard for us to um, imagine the emotional charge that that statement would have set off. To look at people whose career it was to be priests, these religious leaders, right? They had studied the word. They were the best and the brightest students as, as kids. They had risen to this place of authority in Jewish life. And for Jesus to look at them and say, hey, guess what? The prostitutes and the tax collectors are entering the kingdom of heaven before you. I mean, that would have been a huge slap in the face. The very people that you are looking down on, the ones that you think you are better than, get the kingdom better than you do. Have you noticed that throughout the Gospels, 
Jesus is constantly lifting up as an example the people that you would expect the least. Right? Just a short list came to mind for me. The Good Samaritan, uh, the woman at the well, both were Samaritans. Samaritans were people who intermarried with other empires that attacked the Jews over the years, the Assyrians, Babylonians, and so Jews um, looked down on them as kind of half-breeds and idol worshipers because they'd also adopted foreign gods. A couple different occasions, Jesus lifts up these Samaritans as, hey, these are the people that are living out the gospel the way that I would want them to. He, he, there's a famous scene where there's a Roman uh, soldier, a squadron leader, right? And Jesus says, this guy has more faith than anyone I've seen in Israel so far. He says to the tax collectors, the prostitutes, these people are getting it. They understand faith, love, grace better than you professional religious people. And guys, if we, if we take the next step of that line of thought, what it makes me wonder and what I think we have to do to ourselves is we have to picture Jesus coming to Wellspring, you know, or just to St. Joseph right now in 2019, coming by the office on a Tuesday, knocking on my door. Hey, Bob, let's, let's go for a walk around town. I want to introduce you to some people who probably get the kingdom better than you do. And I can guarantee you there would be some people that he'd be introducing me to that I would be offended to think that they get this whole thing better than me. I think you'd all be surprised too. These church leaders, Jesus says, you guys have seen the proof. Right on Jesus' inner circle of 12 people, one of the people that he picked was a tax collector. He was a a collaborator with the Romans. I'm pretty sure that the other disciples didn't even like this guy when he got invited onto the team. Matthew, seriously? That guy, that crook that's been robbing our people to fund the Romans, he's the one you're going to pick? But man, his life was transformed. They probably heard about Zacchaeus. Right? Come down out of the tree. I'm going to your house. This guy who was a tax collector's heart is transformed. He pays back four times what he owed people. This massive life transformation. The religious leaders had seen these prostitutes that, that Jesus had shown grace and compassion to, that had left their old life of sin and become devoted followers of Christ, and they'd been transformed. They saw all of this transformation going on, but yet still their hearts were hard. Why? Because they had something authority standing in society that they didn't want to let go of, regardless of what Jesus was doing in the lives of people. And guys, the good news in all of this, for all of us, is that Jesus came for both of those sons and those like them. Those who openly disobeyed, but later changed their mind, and for those who think they have it all together, but inwardly are filled with all kinds of sin. You see, in the Gospels, we see tax collectors and prostitutes coming to Christ, but we also see several Pharisees that come to Christ as well at at possibly a great cost to their careers. We have such a gracious God who puts up with so much of our junk and our pride, and that should be what compels us to listen and obey right away. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. He says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. 
And he died for all, that those who should live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, God sent his only son, Jesus, into the vineyard of the world to harvest a crop. Matthew 18, 14 says this, that God was not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Jesus is the only son who responded and obeyed the first time. Not because his mission was easy, because it was really quite costly, but because the constant posture that Jesus took was, not my will, but yours be done. That's the kind of posture and spirit God is asking all of us to have as his followers. And Jesus spoke about this posture several times in the Gospels. Just a few examples. In Matthew chapter 6, right, Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Later in Matthew chapter 12, when talking about family, Jesus says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So this should beg the question to us this morning, then, what is the will of the Father? So if I gave you all a pop quiz right now, and I had you get your program out, and, and I'd put the question up there, what is the will of the Father? What would you write down? What is the will of the Father? How would you answer that question? I'm asking you to respond out loud. If you had to describe what the will of the Father is, yes, Zachary. Yeah, yeah, so it's saying, it says rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, right? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Man, that's a good answer. <laughs> Whew, what a great kid. <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, if God promises suffering, if Jesus suffered, and we're not living uncomfortably, then we're probably not living like Jesus, right? So there should be a, a, a level of uncomfortableness about our life if we're going to reflect Jesus. Yeah. Love God and love people. Okay, if you're doing those things, you're doing the will of the Father. Great. Yeah. Sure. In order to live in the, into the will of the Father, we have to be obedient. Man, you guys are... Ooh. Dang, I'm going to take you all out on those Bible quiz shows, man. We're going to make some money. You guys are doing great this morning. See, the earlier time thing, you guys are like, come on, bring it on, man. I'm good. Okay, that's great. To me, what came to mind for me first, and it kind of gets back to the image of the fig tree, is our life bearing fruit? Is our life bearing fruit? Okay, that would be an indicator 
that we are doing the will of the Father, if our life is producing fruit. I want you to turn your Bibles over to John chapter 15, page 983. Jesus is doing this, this analogy of the vine and the branches. He's the vine, we are the branches. Stay connected to me, abide in me. In verse 80 says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, like Haley was talking about, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, what Tony mentioned, you know, love each, or actually Sam, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. So Jesus says that we have been appointed, called, to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Well, what does that mean? <clears throat> I know when I became a Christian, like, and said, oh, you're supposed to bear fruit. Like, I don't know, apple's supposed to come out of my armpits, or what's, what does that mean exactly, okay? Um, wouldn't it be cool, though, if you could just, hey, all right, free food. Anyways, I digress. Um, Bearing fruit, you know, you can look at it a couple different ways. You can look at it in, in, the, in the spiritual sense of character development, right? Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit, right? The song's still stuck in my head from last summer, like, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, blah. Okay, so it, should, it could be those character qualities. I'm growing in those, becoming more Christ-like, okay? Another way of viewing um, whether you're bearing fruit is the impact that you're having on people, and the world around you, okay? Uh, somebody that you've discipled and mentored is kind of the fruit of your um, labors, right? Your, your um, discipleship, okay? So that's what, what bearing fruit means. And we're called to go and do that. And we do that first of all by obeying God's commands. And in doing so, we stay connected to the vine, which is kind of like our source of power in life to go and do the ministry that God has called us to, and God's greatest commands we said today are to love him and to love one another. To see, the sin of both sons in the parable was a lack of love, a lack of love for their father, a lack of love for other people that would have benefited from the work in the vineyard that they did. They were primarily concerned with themselves, with their own comfort and their own desires. And so as followers of Christ, what Jesus is asking us here through this parable is he's saying that our actions and our beliefs have to line up. Is our life actually producing fruit or is it just a collection of leaves? Do we look pretty on the outside? Are we doing all the right things? We're going to church and maybe even reading our Bible, but we're not producing anything in our life. We're not primarily concerned with obedience and loving our neighbor. Is our heart like Jesus broken for those who are perishing? Now, I want to say this, guys, because I think it's really important, because we can, some, some of us can really be hard on ourselves. 
And we can look at ourselves and be like, oh, geez, I'm horrible. I'm not producing any fruit. Bob's saying I'm not a Christian. I'm going to hell. Okay? I might be saying that, but I'll let you be the judge. But here's the deal, guys, is if you are, if you have surrendered your life to Christ and the desire of your heart is to know him and to please him and to be like him, the Bible says that you are a good tree and that a good tree will produce good fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Just like a bad tree, a life that's not centered on Christ can't produce good fruit, okay? So you need to understand that and rest in that, is that if you continue in the way of Christ, your life as a natural result of following Jesus and having him inside you, good fruit will come out of your life. An important test, I think, for all of us is to ask the people around us. Ask our friends, our family, our spouse, our kids, do you see evidence of good fruit in my life? Am I becoming more loving, joyful, patient, kind, self-controlled, gentle? And hopefully they can say, yeah, I've seen growth in you. Do you see other people being impacted by my life? Other people changing because of my investment in them? The ministry that I'm involved in, or, or is there fruit being produced? Now, if people around you look at your life and they honestly can't really point out a lot of great examples, then you probably need to ask yourself, am I just a believer in God, a fan, or am I really following him? And that might be a question that only you can answer for yourself. But we ought to be able to turn to the people around us and say, is there evidence of fruit in my life? Because if there isn't, I don't really know that you're following Jesus. Because that's what he's called us to do, to go and bear fruit that will last. And what he calls us to, he'll, he'll equip us to do. Okay? The parable of the two sons asks us the question, are we doing the will of the Father? Will we respond like Jesus, the son who listened and obeyed and whose words and actions lined up? Getting back to that story that we talked about, the N.T. Wright quote earlier, God is drawing together a body of people to do his will from the heart. Everyone is invited to play their part in this movement, and he's asking all of us, to work in his vineyard, to produce fruit that will last. So where do we begin? Well, I might suggest something to us this morning as we close. When John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus, he was kind of speaking on the outskirts of town, and people were coming to him in droves to hear him speak. And one day these Pharisees, these religious leaders, came to hear what John was saying, or probably to accuse him of something. John looked at them in Matthew 3, 8, and he said this, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What did he mean? Well, he meant that a truly repentant person, okay, to repent means to change, to turn away from, who acknowledges and takes responsibility for their sin, their sinful actions, their sinful heart, what they're thinking on the inside, will lead to change that will inevitably produce fruit in their life for the kingdom of God. If you have a repentant spirit about you and you're acknowledging and, and you're turning you know, your sin over to God and saying, God, forgive me those things and change me, your life will produce fruit. God can do something with a hungry and humble person. 
The problem with a lot of the religious leaders in Jesus' day is that they weren't very hungry and they weren't very humble. And the starting point is repentance. And that's what Lent is all about. Lent is this season where we prepare, we remind ourselves, hey, in six weeks we're going to be going to the cross. Why did the cross have to happen? The cross had to happen because my goodness wasn't good enough. My sin demanded a sacrifice to be forgiven. My sin put that man on the cross. And I have to get in touch with that or else it's not going to mean that much to me. We're going to go through the season of Easter and it's going to be, you know, chocolate bunnies and dresses and whatever, but it's not going to be life-changing. And Lent is a season that says, hey, guys, get in touch with your depravity. Get in touch with your need for God so that when it comes to Black Friday and Easter Sunday, you can appreciate the meaning of those things. How absolutely life-changing those things can be for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word.